Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session. Welcome back, everyone, to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm excited to bring you guys today's episode, which is all about antibiotic resistance. We are all briefly aware of antibiotic resistance being a global phenomenon. However, as we know in the space of dentistry, we have the responsibility to know when to prescribe antibiotics appropriately. It can be really blurry at times, and to help me navigate through this is dentist and pharmacist, Dr. Leanne To. In my opinion, there is not a more appropriate person in Australia to have this kind of discussion with, as she has been involved in various systematic reviews on antibiotic use in dentistry, along with co-authoring the therapeutic guideline. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Some call it the Holy Bible of Dentistry and others call it the Clown Book. I'm not too sure if you're aware of this kind of recurring inside joke in dental school, but in first year as a dental student, you might be told, oh, Hayden, you're on the, you're on the front cover of the Dental Therapeutic Guidelines. And I go, oh, no way. And then I look at the front cover of the book and sure enough, it's this clown with this big mouth open. <laughs> Incidentally, I hadn't heard that one before, but I, I might try and use it on, on some students maybe. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. We're here to talk about all things antibiotics. So we learned in school about the whole issue of antibiotic resistance. Why is it such a big deal? It's a really good question. And I think it's a, a question that we hear about antibiotic resistance a lot, don't we? In the news, in the media, but what does it really mean to us? Well, antimicrobial resistance, it's, it accounts for about 700,000 deaths worldwide annually, actually. So it's a really huge global public health problem. And it's just driven by the use of antibiotics. So the more we use antibiotics, the more likely bacteria will develop resistance to them. And they develop resistance just as an evolutionary property. It's how they survive. So they develop or acquire resistance. They spread their resistance genes. And before you know it, you've got some infections that are resistant to multiple antibiotics. And if we keep going the way we are, then eventually infections that are once treatable with antibiotics, the antibiotics won't work. And of course... Antibiotics underpin all of modern medicine. So without antibiotics working, we couldn't have cancer treatment, sepsis treatment, transplants, autoimmune therapies. None of these would be possible if antibiotics weren't working. But I do think a lot of the question that comes to dentistry is, well, what deal with dentistry and antibiotic resistance? You know, why do dentists need to be concerned by it all? How does it affect us? Well, actually, dental antibiotic prescribing accounts for 10% of all antibiotics worldwide, which is actually quite a high figure considering that there's very limited need for antibiotics in dentistry. That's as high as hospital prescribing in some countries. But actually of that 10% of antibiotics, of all the antibiotics prescribed by dentists, up to 80% are prescribed inappropriately. And that's for both therapeutic as well as prophylactic reason. Let, let's talk about then the idea of using antibiotics for something like an acute dentoalveolar infection, and you've in fact done systematic reviews on the effectiveness of antibiotics. What things, does it actually improve things in the slightest? Or? Yeah. So when, when do we use, when is it appropriate yeah. to use antibiotics and when is it, is it not appropriate yeah, to use yeah, antibiotics is your question. Yeah. Yes. So in general, dentistry is all about dental treatment and not drugs. So whether it be scaling a root planing or taking out the tooth or pop exipating, by doing dental treatment, the dentist is able to address the cause of the infection. And that's the most effective way of getting someone out of pain and addressing their infection. So when an infection is localized, an acute odontogenic infection that is localized, 
it's just dental treatment that is needed as a general rule. But of course, if the infection has spread or there's signs of uh, spreading infection, such as an extra oral swelling, for example, or there's lymph node involvement, that's when dental treatment, but also antibiotics would be needed in those situations. A lot of the inappropriate prescribing that we see in dentistry is actually for those localized infections where dental treatment alone would be sufficient. But we also know that prescribing decisions are really complex and there's a lot of non-clinical reasons that influence antibiotic prescribing in dentistry as well. So for example, things that you may not think of but you'll encounter in clinical practice where if the dentist is running late, limited clinical time is a really well-documented factor in the literature why dentists tend to prescribe antibiotics instead of doing dental treatment. Other factors such as patient expectations and requests. Some of that inappropriate prescribing is partly patient-driven, where some patients will equate infections needing antibiotics, and some patients can make that request quite heavily of, of the dentist. There's other factors such as being unsure of a diagnosis, but it sounds like an infection. These are all documented reasons why some dentists will prescribe antibiotics. And of course, it's not all dentists all the time, it's just some of the dentists, some of the time, but all up in the literature it is documented that up to 80% of antibiotics are actually prescribed inappropriately or where they're not necessary. So it's really important to answer your question about when it's appropriate to prescribe. It's, as a general rule, it's only when an infection is spreading in general and localised infections just need dental treatment only. As dentists and dental students, we all have difficult days. You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on. Dental practitioner support is there for you in these times to give proactive advice, help you improve your health and well-being before there are major concerns. We all need a helping hand sometimes and it's okay to ask for help. So if you find you need it, call 1800 377 700 or visit the website dpsupport.org.au. They have loads of great information to get you started. I think you raise a good point about patient management side of using antibiotics. I, I got to see or observe a scenario where a patient had this big palatal swelling uh, and it had gotten to that point because she was so dental phobic that, or uh, so needle phobic as well, that it had gotten to that point because of that refusal to see, have dental treatment done. Do you see maybe that as an appropriate use of I think then it comes down to whether, well, and you guys a really good point, Hayden, actually, because we know in the literature that patients being more distressed and reporting more pain is actually a factor in antibiotic prescription when a patient has reported more pain and more distress for, in, in, in the dental clinic. And, but we have to remember that antibiotics are not analgesic, and so they're not for use for pain relief purposes. But certainly, I think it comes down to whether, again, infection is localised or has signs of systemic spread, whether antibiotics are needed or not. And certainly, patients being anxious and, and needle phobic and anxious at the dentist, they're a very common presentation in, 
in clinical practice, which you'll which you'll see, unfortunately, but it's not uncommon. So, as you rightly mentioned, how antibiotics are used inappropriately. To me, a classic example is when we see a patient on a Monday that's gone to the GP on a weekend and been given a course of antibiotics for a dental infection. Do we, as clinicians, then do we halt the course or do we keep the course going? What do we actually do? What what, what do you do in that scenario? Again, I think it comes down to that really relatively simple rule of whether it's it's localized or whether it's systemic. So it's a by the time they present to you, if the infection is localized, there's no systemic features, there's no extraoral swelling, no lymphoid involvement, no temperature, nothing like that. I would do the I would do the dental treatment to address the cause and then I would stop their antibiotics at that point. If, however, of course there's signs of systemic spread, as I described before, then I would continue on that course. So it's so it's about five days. You did actually ask me that question before, and I don't think I answered it, the systematic review. So when we did that systematic review about the most appropriate oral antibiotic for dental infection, we were really interested to know which antibiotics are the most appropriate. Is it narrow spectrum? Is it broad spectrum? And how long is the duration? And so we had two key findings from this systematic review, which were really quite interesting. So the patients involved or included in the studies in this systematic review were all ones that needed antibiotics. They had acute odontogenic infection and also needed antibiotics as well. And the first key finding was that as long as dental treatment was done to address the cause, it didn't really seem to matter whether you had a moderate, a narrow, or a broad spectrum antibiotic. They all seemed to be equally as effective, but the disclaimer was that dental treatment had to be done to address the cause. The cases that didn't resolve were the ones where drainage couldn't be achieved. So for example, the infection was perhaps cellulitic as an example, so there wasn't really much drainage at the time. So, and that's when the the actual spectrum mattered more. So that's the first key finding, that it didn't really seem to matter whether it was narrow or a broad spectrum antibiotic. The key thing was that dental treatment had to be done to address the cause. And the second key finding actually was that shorter courses of between three to five days seemed to be equally as successful. Again, the main disclaimer was that dental treatment had to be done to address the cause of the infection. I wanted to now also explore some recommended uses for when we would use antibiotics. And the classic one is the patient with a heart stent where we're doing, you know, maybe several extractions and, you know, uh, soft tissue manipulation. But it's also, you read some papers and they talk about how even that might not be necessary. When trying to err on the side of being a safe practitioner, but also reducing the amount of antibiotics. Any use. Yep. That's a really, it's a really great question. And it's almost a little bit of a controversial answer as well, actually. So what I see what you're alluding to is obviously antibiotic prophylaxis. So the use of antibiotics to prevent an infection, and that can be at a distant site, such as the heart valves, what I think you're talking about here, to prevent infective endocarditis, or it can be at a distant site, or it can be at a surgical site, sorry. So, and that's called surgical antibiotic prophylaxis. So the use of antibiotics to prevent infective endocarditis, as I said, it's a little, it's different depending on where you are in the world. So here in Australia, we follow the American Heart Association guideline where we recommend high-risk patients undergoing high-risk procedures having antibiotic prophylaxis. So an example of a high-risk patient will be someone such as who has a prosthetic heart valve or perhaps has had previous infective endocarditis. And a high-risk procedure will be an extraction, for example, and a procedure that's 
that's anticipated to generate quite a bit of bacteremia. And the reason why dentistry was involved in this in the first place was that a lot of cases of infective endocarditis found, they found that streptviridans was a, one of the causative organisms of a lot of cases of infective endocarditis. And streptviridans is a main commensal of the gingival crabbits. And so it was thought that a breach in the oral epithelium caused the, or allowed the entry of bacteria from the oral cavity into the bloodstream to colonize on the heart valves and cause this infection. And so the principle of giving a high dose of antibiotics prior to the procedure was to reduce that bacteremia from, from forming. So that's the principle behind it. It has never been proven. And like you said, depending where you are in the world, it, it can be quite different. So as I said, in Australia, we follow American Heart Association guidelines with a few exceptions as well, but in general we do. But if you're in the UK, Rational Institute of Care Excellence guidelines, the NICE guidelines, don't recommend prophylaxis for almost anyone. They have it since 2007, and they've tracked their cases of infective endocarditis since then, and there hasn't been any increase. So, you know, depending where you are in the world, it can be quite different in terms of guidelines, but in Australia, we're high-risk patients for high-risk procedures. But one thing that all the guidelines have in common, whether it be the Australian guidelines or the American Heart Association guidelines, the NICE guidelines, and even the European cardiology guidelines, is that it is recognised that the frequency and cumulative bacteremia generated from everyday activities such as toothbrushing and chewing food produce far more bacteremia than a single tooth extraction. I'm sure you've been you would have heard of that yourself. So yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. preventive care and the work that we do in, in dentistry for preventive care for reducing gingival inflammation, maintaining oral hygiene is so important to these patients. If you're on the hunt to upgrade your current pair of loops, or if you're a student looking to invest in your very first pair, let's talk about Admitech Loops by Byron Medical. Last year, just about everyone around me was showing off their brand new pair of refractive loops with a wireless butterfly light that had just hit the market. I had to get on board and I'm pleased to say I've not looked back, or should I say down, since. Lightweight, sturdy and stylish, Admatex Ergo Loops are designed to optimise your posture so you're not popping a disc trying to prep the distal of that 4.7. Level up your scales and cleans when you can actually see every tiny fleck of calculus fly off the tooth. With a tiny battery light that clips on magnetically and switches out seamlessly even mid-procedure, say goodbye to getting tangled in your wires and the painful indents on your nose bridge from having to support heavy loops. Biomedical are Australian-based and are quick and easy to get in touch with and address any issues you have. They'll even come out to your workplace for your initial consult and fitting session. So look no further, pardon the puns, and join the club. And if you mention Dental Head Start, they'll even throw in a special added bonus. As students, we're always going through our patient's medical history with a fine-tooth comb. One thing that always comes up when we talk about allergies is a penicillin allergy. The patient always says, oh, no, I had penicillin once. I had a really bad reaction and, you know, I'm, I'm allergic. And so as a student, I guess, what should we take? Why do we see so many patients that have a so-called allergy to penicillin? And what's the, the consequence of just, you know, not investigating further? That's a great question. And it's so common, isn't it, to have someone who reports an allergy to penicillin? In fact, it's the most common drug class allergy in the world. About 10% of the population have a reported penicillin allergy. But of that 10%, only 1% is correct, and the other 9% are actually in error. 
And that's because the person either never had an allergy in the first place, they had a side effect like diarrhea or nausea, and it was called an allergy and recorded as an allergy and never questioned. And they've carried that label with them ever since. Or they, their allergy has actually worn off. Not all allergies are lifelong as what we once thought. About 50% of allergies wear off after five years. And the reason why this is important is because people with a, a penicillin allergy label will always receive more toxic, expensive antibiotics with a higher range of side effects. In dentistry, to report an allergy to penicillin, in the guidelines, the patient will receive clindamycin. And clindamycin, it's great against anaerobic bacteria, it's got really good alveolar bone penetration, but it also has a much higher side effect profile compared to narrow and moderate spectrum penicillins. And that's mostly because of its association with C. difficile infection. So, clostridium is difficile, C. Diff- it's a normal commensal of our gut. It lives there in small numbers, very happily in small numbers, but all antibiotics cause a, a dysbiosis, an imbalance of the bacteria in our gut. And when this happens, C. diff can overgrow, and when it does, it can cause a, anywhere between a mild to a life-threatening infectious diarrhea. It produces a couple of toxins that cause inflammation of our colon. And so all antibiotics can cause C. diff, but clindamycin and broad-spectrum antibiotics much more so. And so that's the reason why inquiry appropriate inquiry into a patient's penicillin allergy is really important. And in our current guidelines, therapy guidelines, oral dental version 3, there are some questions where we can appropriately ask patients about their allergy to delve a little bit more into the nature of their reaction and when they got it. And also there's a decision tree in our current therapy guidelines, which assists in terms of management as well. Excellent. And uh, finally, to cap off the episode, I wanted to uh, delve into your little project, the Handbook of Dental Therapeutics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, we've just written a book. So my co-authors are Geraldine Moses and Michael McCullen, and it's going to be called Handbook of Dental Therapeutics. So I was inspired to write this book by students, actually. I started teaching at Nelma Dental School back in 2018, and I frequently got questions about what resource did you use? And that's when it really dawned on me there's no appropriate reference for dental students as well as practitioners, to uh, to use about drugs in dentistry. And so we have written this, this book. It's a concise and succinct but yet comprehensive resource aimed to take a person from their university degree through to working life. We've got chapters all about the drugs that dentists prescribe, like antimicrobials, um, drugs of pain relief, local anesthetic, of course. We've also got chapters dedicated to appropriate prescribal for a certain groups, such as children, adolescents, and the elderly, oral adverse effects, prescribing legalities, the do's and don'ts, prescribing, and also chapters about perioperative medication management, how to manage a patient in the chair with respect to medication use. So for example, um, drugs that contribute to bleeding risk and osteonecrosis of the jaw, for example. So I, I think it should be a really comprehensive and useful resource and hopefully will be available by end of the year. Hopefully. <laughs> Thanks so much. For no worries. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Hayden. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. 
And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists. Thank you.